Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, looks like we've made it through the first week of 2023. Wouldn't you like to know what the rest of the year would be like? No. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to glimpse into the future so we wouldn't be caught by surprise? <laughs> you know, maybe this is one of the reasons why humans seem to be so obsessed with those self-proclaimed experts who predict future events, right? There's uh, people who predict how the economy is going to perform this year. There are people who predict what the housing market is going to look like. There are people who predict how technology is going to change our lives in the years to come. People who will predict who's going to win the next election. People who predict uh, even how and when the world is going to end. In his book, Future Babel, a journalist by the name of Dan Gardner writes about this human obsession with the future. And in this book, he surveyed over 27,000 predictions offered by 284 experts. And the conclusion that he came up with is that the experts did little better and sometimes considerably worse than a dart-throwing chimpanzee. <laughs> so why do we continue listening to these predictions, even when they're wrong? Well, according to Gardner, humans hate uncertainty. We hate uncertainty. And he wrote this. He said, whether sunny or bleak, convictions about the future satisfy the hunger for certainty. We want to believe. And so we do. Well, church, I'm happy to report this morning that there is one expert we can place our certainty in. There is one who never gets uncertain. There's one who never gets disrupted. There's one who's never taken by surprise. We worship that eternal God, the eternal God who created time, the one who transcends time, right? He's altogether conscious of past, present, and future, and the passing of time in no way limits his ability to bring about everything that he sets forward to accomplish because all of human history has already been written by his sovereign hand. And what this means for us, then, is that we don't have to look at the future with uncertainty because we're held by a certain God who's already determined the future. It means that we don't have to go into the year ahead panicking about everything that's going on in the world because we're held by a comforting God who promises peace. It means that we don't have to be frantic about the unknowns of tomorrow because we're held by a faithful God who already knows our tomorrows and who calls us to follow him by faith into the unknown. 
In fact, this was the very message that God gave to the people of Israel through his prophet Daniel. See, as Israel was in exile facing an uncertain and an unknown future, God reminded them uh, through Daniel that their future was held firmly in his hands. And so it is for us as we face an unknown future in a chaotic world filled with so much evil and so much confusion. What God wants us to remember this morning is that our future is held firmly in his hands. Our future is held firmly in the hands of the Father. There's nothing in this world, nothing in this world whatsoever that can disrupt God's plan for you. There's nothing in this world, nothing that you will face this year that will destroy God's future for you. There's absolutely nothing that can disrupt any of this because your future is held firmly in his mighty hand. And this is what we're going to see today from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, we watch as God pulls back the curtain of human history, giving us this sweeping view of his plan for the ages and for the saints. Daniel 7, then, is where we pick up our study this morning. Now, we remember Daniel as that godly teenager who lived in Israel uh, during the time when um, the Babylonian Empire came in and destroyed Jerusalem and Israel in around 605 BC. And then Daniel, as a godly teenager, and some of uh, his friends, they were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, about 700 miles away. And they then were uh, forced to go into uh, the king's university, um, three-year school that the Babylonian king had. And then they graduated with honors at that university, and they're placed in uh, privileged government positions. And then time and again, we see Daniel and his friends trusting God and staying loyal to him no matter the cost. And then we even saw that uh, a special gift that God gave to Daniel, Daniel's ability to interpret dreams and visions. And he comes to the aid of the king several times. Well, now with chapter 7, we're beginning our new study through the second half of the book, and we're calling this study Undefeated. And it's named this because these chapters, the second half, chapters 7 through 12, are peppered with prophetic visions that give us a glimpse into God's victorious plan of a hope-filled future for his children. So the first six chapters of Daniel were all about the historical narratives of Daniel's life. And then the second half of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, um, are not narratives. They don't focus on narratives. Instead, they're uh, apocalyptic and prophetic visions, right? It's a, a God's eye view of human history using uh, such vivid imagery and, and this co all colorful uh, symbolism and metaphors. And then Daniel gives us the setting in the very first verse of Daniel chapter 7. This is what he tells us. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the manner. So Daniel receives this vision. This, would, this was during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign. This is some years after Nebuchadnezzar had died. If you were looking at the book of Daniel chronologically, this takes place between Daniel chapters 4 and 5. Um, and this was very timely for Daniel to receive this vision when he did because um, the persecution of the Jews kind of uh, came to a climax under King Belshazzar's uh, reign. And this all takes place around 553 B.C. is when Daniel receives 
um, this vision, and he's in his mid-60s. So then he tells us about this first scene of his vision, and this first scene of Daniel's vision takes place on earth. Verses 2 and 3. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So Daniel's immediately overwhelmed by his vision. He sees a great sea being stirred by the great winds of heaven. And scripture often uses the sea as a symbol for chaos, for turbulence, for unrest, and for hostility to God. But notice that the four winds of heaven are stirring up the sea, meaning that God in heaven is the one who controls and permits every single thing that happens on earth. Now, we know that these beasts in this vision represent different kingdoms because that's a little clue uh, that we'll steal from later on in the chapter. And, and these, so, so all these beasts rising up out of the chaotic waters of sinful human history represent different kingdoms. And even today, we see nations represented by animals, right? The American eagle, the British lion, the Russian bear. But what Daniel sees in his vision are not Ordinary animals, they're, they're mutants. They're not part of God's created order. Verse 4, he tells us this first beast that he saw. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So this first beast is like this hybrid uh, lion slash eagle. And we understand that this beast represents uh, Babylon in Daniel's day. The major streets in Babylon were all lined with these um, winged lions, and that was a symbol of the Babylonian Empire. Verse 5, Daniel says, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. So this second beast is like this lopsided bear with one size a little higher and taller and stronger than the other. And this beast then is understood to represent the Medo-Persian Empire, um, the kingdom which um, consisted of Media, which would have been the smaller of the two nations, and Persia, the stronger and more dominant of those two nations. So God granted this kingdom permission to devour much flesh, right, to conquer the three nations that they did, the kingdoms that they conquered. Now, pause for a moment here, and you have to reflect on the truthfulness and veracity of Scripture here, because this is given around 553 B.C., and the Medo-Persian Empire doesn't rise to dominance until 14 years after this. So Daniel is, he doesn't know this, but God's giving him a very specific vision of, of the kingdoms that are coming. Verse 6. After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So this third beast is this four-headed leopard with four wings. Now we know a leopard is one of the fastest animals in the animal kingdom and the fact that it had four wings just um, signifies just how, how quick and, and speedy this animal, this beast is. Now the beast here is understood traditionally as the kingdom of Greece. It was around the year 331 BC, uh, more than 200 years after Daniel has his vision. Uh, that's when Greece becomes the dominant world empire under Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was about 22 years old when he 
started conquering the world. And by the time he was 32 years old, in 10 short years, he conquered almost all of the known world at the time. And legend even says um, that he wept because there was uh, no more land to conquer. So the four heads then that you see of this beast of Greece, um, they likely represent the kingdom um, after Alexander the Great died because Alexander the Great had uh, four generals and then when he died, the kingdom of Greece was divided up between those four generals. And notice it says, that little phrase where it says, dominion was given to it. So who gave dominion to this beast? Was it Alexander's military genius? No, it was God. God is the only one who can give dominion to anything or anyone. In the execution of his plans, God allowed all of this to happen. We're being reminded here that God controls everything, even evil human empires. Verse 7, and after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this fourth beast appears, and it seems to be different from the other three. Right? Not only is it the most frightening of the beasts, but there's not even a known animal that Daniel could compare this beast to. And this beast also has ten horns. Those ten horns speak of its, its great strength, its destructive force and might. And the beast um, also um, appears to symbolize uh, here what we know of the Roman Empire. The Romans began dominating the world in 63 BC after Greece, and that's when their mighty and cruel iron legions began um, destroying the whole known world at the time. So as Daniel's considering all of this, he's considering this vision, he's considering these horns and what they might represent, then all of a sudden he sees something else in his vision, verse 8. He said, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. See, so Daniel sees this 11th horn emerging from these other 10 horns, and it begins small, but it starts to grow, and it starts to dominate some of the others. And what really seems to grab Daniel's attention, though, here, is that this horn had eyes like a man, and it spoke the way a man would speak. It says great things. The translation is actually arrogant, haughty, boastful, proud things. But nothing at this point is said any further of this little horn. And Daniel's vision soon now going to transport him to a whole other dimension. So what's this whole vision of these four successive beasts supposed to teach us? What was it supposed to teach Daniel? Simple. God is sovereign. God is in control. He's in control over the godless kingdoms of Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome. And he's also in control over all of the evil kingdoms represented in our day. He's had control of all those human kingdoms, control of every single human kingdom since then, and control of every single kingdom that will rise to power to the very end of the age. God is in control of all of it, even the evil rulers of our day. In other words, God controls even the fiercest evils that rise in opposition to him. 
The four beasts that rose from the sea terrified Daniel. He was scared. So let me ask you, what are the beasts today that tend to scare you? Do you get scared when you turn on the news and see the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war? Do you fear the ever-increasing immorality of our Western culture? Do you panic about the education system going down the tubes and what they're trying to feed and teach our children? Do you grow furious when, when those who rise to power in our government seem to be the most wicked of all of them? See, the remedy for our fear or the remedy for our fury in that case is to remember that God is in control. Right? The fiercest evils of our day that oppose Jesus, those wicked agendas that seek to oppress the church and seek to destroy Christianity, don't stand a chance against him. He patiently and perfectly works through every action of every evil person to bring about his good purposes. Then, verse 9 suddenly transports Daniel from the first scene of the beasts of the earth Now to a second scene, this time to the throne room of heaven. Now listen to the beauty and magnificence of these next verses. As Daniel sees the eternal God, the ancient of days, take a seat on his throne. And these verses, these upcoming verses are written in Hebrew poetry, and that was very intentional um, on, on Daniel because he's trying to convey the order and beauty surrounding God as opposed to the chaos and disorder of the sea. Verse 9, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So the ancient of days takes his throne. So while kingdoms and kings have come and gone, while evil rulers have risen and fallen, while economies have succeeded and faltered, God has always prevailed over and above all of it. He's the only one wise enough, the only one just enough, the only one pure enough, holy enough, righteous enough, powerful enough, worthy enough to receive praise from countless angels and to take his seat upon heaven's highest throne as judge of the entire universe. So the accused are brought before him and the record books of judgment are opened. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So Daniel's attention suddenly shifts here from from heaven back to earth again because he hears that familiar voice of that little horn speaking blasphemy and pompous words. And in an amazing uh, anti-climax of the text, the beast is destroyed. It's just real simple. It says the beast was killed, its body was destroyed, and given over to be burned with the fire. That's it. And we're reminded that true dominion belongs exclusively to God. 
Well, in his vision, the picture changes again. And another element of the vision unfolds before him. Verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As opposed to the evil beasts that Daniel saw rising out of the sea, Daniel now sees a a human-like figure coming with the clouds of heaven. So this divine being comes before God and is granted an eternal and indestructible kingdom. So what's the identity of this son of man? Jesus, right? During our Advent series last month, we walked through this. We learned that son of man was one of Jesus's um, most often used self-designations. Right? For Jesus was one like a son of man. He was fully human, and in every way, he was the perfect man. He was the second and final Adam, and yet Jesus is at the same time fully God, expressed here by the fact that the son of man rides on the clouds of heaven, something only God does in scripture. So after his death and his resurrection, what does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then before he descended, ascended into heaven, Jesus reminded his followers that at some God-appointed period in the future, he's going to return on the clouds. And then with this cosmic sweep then of redemptive history from the beasts of Daniel's day to the death and resurrection of Jesus almost 600 years later, all the way to the final judgment yet to come, we learn through all of it, Victory belongs to God. We learn that though evil will appear to have the sway, God has the say and will ultimately win the day. Though evil will appear to have the sway, God has the say and will ultimately win the day. Those days when it seems that the evil kingdoms of men just loom so much larger Over the kingdom of God, may we remember that God has the say. He's got the first say, he's got the final say, and he's got every say in between. And though it may appear at times that the church is on the brink of extinction, Jesus rules, and he will return again to make his victory evident and plain to all and to vanquish evil and suffering once and for all. Evil is having its day. The kingdoms of earth are having their day, but the ancient of days has the final say and will ultimately win the day. Amen. Amen. Now, how do you suppose these alarming visions made Daniel feel? Well, the next scene fills us in. Starting at verse 15, Daniel says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So Daniel's deeply disturbed by everything that he's been seeing so far. He's scared. He's got lots of questions, more questions than he had even before all of this. He's, then he sees some sort of a heavenly messenger in his vision, and he approaches him to get some answers. Verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there, And asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. 
These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So the answer Daniel was given here is what has informed our interpretation of the passage thus far, that these four great beasts represent kings and their kingdoms. And then a new piece of information is revealed to Daniel. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So Daniel learns that in some way, shape, or form, the one like a son of man is somehow connected to God's kingdom, and that is somehow connected to the saints. See, when Jesus came, he said that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the time has been fulfilled. Repent and believe the good news. Then when Jesus stepped onto the stage of human history, he brought the kingdom of God with him because he's the king. Everywhere Jesus goes, the kingdom follows. Jesus demonstrated his kingship time and time again while he walked on earth. He demonstrated his kingship over creation. He demonstrated his kingship, his authority over the evil forces of the demonic realm. He demonstrated his kingship over illness. He demonstrated that he's king over all the things that grip us and and overwhelm us and so easily try to overtake us. And he invites everyone to enter into his kingdom by submitting to his rule by surrendering to him as the rightful king over every single part of our existence. Then he regenerates us. He removes our old nature, our old sinful nature, nails it to the cross with Christ. And then he gives us his life and he makes us saints, saints who will inherit his eternal kingdom. And if we're saints, then we can face the future with faith because we know how the story ends. It ends with Jesus coming again, vanquishing all evil, giving his kingdom to us. We can face the future with faith because we know how the story ends. We can face tomorrow with faith because we know how all of it ends. See, we're living right now in the middle of history. History hasn't ended yet, but it will. It's going to, and when it does, God's gonna execute his judgment on earth and welcome all the saints in Christ Jesus. God's purpose from eternity past was to redeem a people for himself. What Adam failed to do when he was given dominion of the earth What you and I can never do because of our utter corruption, Jesus, the perfect son of man, did by the shedding of his own blood and by his own resurrection. This is where we are then on God's timetable of redemptive history. Jesus is still building his kingdom. He's continuing to build that kingdom. Every time a person says yes to following Jesus, another saint is added to the kingdom. As kingdom saints then... We know how the story ends. The story ends with Jesus victorious. The story ends with evil being judged and sin being done away with. The story ends with the saints redeemed and in possession of the internal inheritance that is ours, purchased for us by our Savior. The story ends with all peoples and nations and languages serving him, worshiping him, and enjoying his presence in the presence of one another in his perfect, righteous, indestructible, and everlasting lasting kingdom. So we don't know what the year ahead will hold for us. We don't know the wicked things that are going to befall us. We don't know the wars that might start or the shootings that are going to happen. 
We don't know the way our brothers and sisters around the world are going to be persecuted this year. We don't know what's going to happen to our possessions, our nest eggs, our jobs, our health, our families. We don't know these things. But what we do know is Jesus. We know Jesus and we know how it ends. We know he reigns and he is victorious. So come what may, we can face the future with faith because we know how the story ends. Amen? Amen. So Daniel gets a glimpse of God's view of human history. He's shown how the story ends. But there's something else still nagging him. right? He just can't seem to, to shake this thought of this fourth beast, in particular that 11th little horn that he saw. He can't shake this terrifying vision of that mysterious horn. Verse 19, he says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and the mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Remember that this little horn differs from all the other horns described. Because here it's not described as a mutant animal, it's described as, uh, as a human, as one like a human. Right? That the horn has eyes like a human uh, signals uh, that this individual is very insightful, very intelligent. And then when it says here that he has a mouth that speaks great things, arrogant things. It shows how dangerous he will be. And not only does he have the intellect and insight of an intelligent person, but he also is very persuasive with his words, dangerously so. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until... The ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. See, the judgment scene that Daniel sketched um, earlier reappears again here. Uh, but this time it's from the viewpoint of earth. From looking up, this mysterious ruler makes war with the saints and he prevails for a short while over them until God steps in and executes his justice. Then the heavenly messenger, who Daniel approached, gives us some further clarification in 23. He says, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So out of the, the fourth beast of the Roman Empire, a ten kings will arise, followed by another king. Now who are these ten kings? We don't know. Ten is the number of fullness and completion. So it could be um, that, that this number refers to a full number of kings and kingdoms that are somehow going to rise from the ashes of the Roman Empire. Or it could refer to ten literal kings, Ultimately, you could speculate, but we don't know. God didn't think it was important enough to give us clarity on this, and so we won't speculate. What we do know, though, is that this little 11th horn is different from the other kings. 
He's different from the others in that he'll challenge God himself and that he'll try to annihilate God's people. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So some people believe that this little horn was uh, the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. Others see uh, the Roman general Titus as this little horn. Um, Many understand this little horn to be the man of lawlessness that the New Testament talks about that will come at the end of the age, the Antichrist, right? The Antichrist who will rise in power toward the end and wage war against God and the church. Well, which is it? Well, it could be all of them. See, as we're going to learn in our study through the rest of Daniel, these are apocalyptic visions, uh, so you have to be very careful with how you interpret them. And See, they, they, they regularly uh, collapse one period of time over another. So it's, it's really hard to put any kind of strict timetable to this, which means that there's often more than one horizon of fulfillment, right? There have been many antichrists through the ages, and there, but there will be one antichrist at the end of the age who will embody evil, one who will blaspheme God and one who will persecute God's people but his reign will be temporary. See, that's what's key here. Whoever this is ain't gonna reign for a long time. His influence will last for a time. It will be strengthened and consolidated for times. And just as we'd expect uh, his power to reach its climax, it will be destroyed and only survive for half a time. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed but I kept the matter in my heart. See, Jesus told us that we'll experience trouble. We'll experience persecution for his sake. Church history has taught us that God's people do experience suffering and oppression, and Daniel's vision affirms that the saints of God will go through a time of serious testing and tribulation and trial. But this persecution, this, uh, this testing, this oppression is only temporary. A day is coming when God will convene the heavenly assembly, when he'll judge the Antichrist, when he'll remove him from his position of authority and completely annihilate him. So this final scene then of Daniel's vision reminds us that the temporary suffering we experience on earth is going to be eclipsed by the everlasting peace we'll know in eternity. See, the message of Daniel 7 is that we serve a victorious king whose heavenly kingdom is greater and stronger in every way than the human kingdoms of earth. In Christ, we have ultimate victory over the evils of this world. As Daniel awaited for the Son of Man to come and inaugurate his kingdom on earth in his first coming, so we wait for Jesus, the Son of Man, to come again and to bring to consummation his kingdom on earth. So in seasons of waiting... Our victory is not going to always look obvious. In times of trial, it's not going to look apparent. 
In times of suffering and in days of anxiety, we're reminded that we won't be ahead in every inning, but we're on the winning team. We're the people of the one whose kingdom and whose dominion is universal and eternal. And our king will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. He'll clear every hurt from our lives. He'll fully satisfy every single longing of our heart and he'll redeem every single moment of our suffering. The temporary suffering we experience on earth will be eclipsed by the everlasting peace we'll know in eternity because our future is held firmly in the hands of the Father. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for this beautiful, vivid glimpse into the supernatural, into the spiritual world, into the future. Lord, thank you that you're a God who's never taken by surprise. You're a God who's never uncertain, never caught off guard, never in a panic. Thank you for the blessing that's ours in your written word. Lord, and we're reminded, uh, it seems, almost every moment of every day that evil is real, that there's pain and suffering, that there's sorrow in this world, and that humans are capable of uh, causing so much havoc. But as we saw so clearly demonstrated in your word this morning, ultimate authority is yours. Ultimate authority didn't lie with Babylon or media or Persia or Greece or Rome. Ultimate authority doesn't lie in any of our political leaders. Lord, ultimate authority is the Lord Jesus Christ's and his alone. Lord, so we trust you with all of our tomorrows. Enable us to walk forward into the year ahead with faith. Knowing that though we don't know the specifics of what the year holds for us, Lord, that nothing comes our way without your permission. And that you are good. You are God. Not only are you so great and majestic and wise as the ancient of days, but you are so deeply personal, so deeply intimate with us. Thank you for your greatness, and we thank you for your goodness. Lord, so strengthen us for the battles that lie ahead this coming year. Strengthen us by reminding us that you have already won, that no ruler could trample your kingdom, no nation can trample your ways, Nothing can overturn or harm or disrupt your plans and your purposes. You are God. You are in control. You are good. Lord, so enable us to trust that you have our future firmly held in your powerful hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.